Hello and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett, a leadership speaker and retired Air Force Colonel. It's such an honor each month to host such a wide range of guests, each of whom have gone above and beyond in their service to others, whether on the battlefield or right here at home in America. What makes our guest this month extra special is that he has done both. With heroism that earned him the Medal of Honor as a Special Forces Combat Medic during Vietnam, and a life of continued service back home after he retired from the military. I am super excited and excited to have you guys here, Medal of Honor recipient Gary Bykirk, about his more than 20 years of service as a middle school counselor in Rochester, New York. Talk about a combat environment. Yep. So I always said Vietnam was good training for working. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you do it. This, that is some good training right there. But yep. so the one thing too is here in America this month and next, uh, American children are headed back to in-person school after more than a year of disruption and remote learning due to the COVID pandemic. Yep. And Mr. Bykirk, you have a unique understanding of the challenges that these kids are going to face as they reintegrate into public life, a challenge that you navigated um, upon your return from Vietnam, and you've helped hundreds of others navigate uh, throughout your entire life of service. So it is my tremendous honor to kick this off and welcome our Medal of Honor recipient, Gary Bykirk, to the Mission Inspire podcast. So thanks again, Mr. Bykirk. Thank you, ma'am. It's good to be here. This is fantastic. You know, your story, both in the military and ever since, is one of tremendous service, sacrifice, and devotion to your fellow man. So we want to hear all about it, but we want to start at the beginning. What made you to decide to enlist in the Army? Mm. As opposed to the Air Force, Marines, or Navy? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I always question why people don't join the Air Force. But yeah, let's hear a little bit about why you enlisted and why you made the choice of the Army. Well, growing up, I was always faced with a lot of challenges. Uh, back in that time frame, in the 50s, divorce wasn't a common thing. And my parents got divorced when I was like about, oh, about five years old or six years old. So I grew up with a single parent and um, things were difficult back then. And being a single parent, we moved around a lot. I lived with aunts and uncles. Um, fortunately, we had a very, very close extended family. I had, I had about 20 different cousins. And so I spent a month with this cousin, a month with that cousin and living with different in different households. So there was a challenge of trying to acclimate yourself to a new living environment every couple of months. And so I always kind of liked the challenge. It was, a, I, you know, I always felt like I had to try to prove myself. And maybe that comes from coming from a divorced family. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of the, all the psychology behind divorcees and kids raised in single parent families. I just knew that um, this is what I am and uh, I got to make the best of it. So I was challenged by things. And um, when Vietnam came into the scene, I was, I was challenged by a lot of what I heard. I, I was in college and I heard a lot of rhetoric from people that didn't really seem to know. I'd ask them, well, how do you know this to be true? And they'd say, well, this person said that, you know, and, and well, this person, this person says that. And I'd say, yeah, but how do you know? And, um, I, I wanted to find out for myself. And I figured that the only way to do that was to go and enlist and find out. And if I was going to enlist, I wanted to enlist in the best unit possible. 
And uh, at that particular time, I felt it was the Green Berets. I jokingly tell a story that something else that had an influence on my listing was um, I had gone through a girl all through high school and we were planning on getting married and everything. And um, we, she went to college, I went to college, the same college she did. She majored in phys ed, so I majored in phys ed. I had our, our future all planned out. Well, we got there at, at college and within a month she broke up with me. So there goes my plan right down the tubes, you know. So I had a, a, my best friend, he also had a similar experience. His girlfriend broke up with him. So he came home from the University of Denver and he said, okay, Gary, what are we gonna do? And I said, I don't know, Don, what are you gonna do? And he said, well, I'm gonna join the Marine Corps. Come on, we're going to the Marine Corps together because he had a heritage of Marines in his family. And I said, I don't know, Don, those Marines are crazy. I don't think I'm gonna go in the Marine Corps. <laughs> I'm going to go in the Green Berets, Don. So I joined the Green Berets. Uh, actually, I think that probably had a, a little bit to do with it, but mostly I was interested in the challenge. I wanted to find out from my experience what Vietnam was all about. Um, and, and then again, I would go back to the idea of, of facing a challenge. The Green Berets were the ultimate uh, soldier, uh, ultimate training uh, that I was aware of at the time. I had just finished reading a book, Robin Moore, The Green Berets. And so that kind of set the stage for me, wanting to make that next step and go into becoming a Green Beret. I remember walking down to the recruiter's office and I uh, talked to the Sergeant First Class Floda was his name. And he said, yeah, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I want to, I want to enlist in the Green Berets. And he laughed at me and he huh. said, well, you can't just really enlist in the Green Berets, you know. And, and he said, it's a challenge. It's You got to volunteer and there's all kinds of tests. And that's all I needed to hear. You lay a challenge down before me and I'd say, sign me up. And so I'd say, well, I don't care. I'm gonna, I want to become a Green Beret. And he said, well, I can, I can sign you up for it. Airborne unassigned. That'll be, that'll be a good way, good entrance in the Green Berets. Airborne unassigned. Like that was difficult, you know. <laughs> So I signed up and I was on my way to Fort Dix, New Jersey uh, in 1967, headed for basic training and looking forward to going through special forces training. And my goal was to come back after I'd gotten that Green Beret and go to the college campus where I was at, walk around the college campus with that Green Beret, hoping I'd run into that girl and say, see, this is what you could have had. That never happened though. <laughs> never did that. So somewhere there is a high school sweetheart who is who has missed her opportunity. So uh, yes. now, did Don ever join the Marines then, or what did he end up doing? Yeah, he joined the Marines, and he, unfortunately, he was killed at Quezon. Oh wow! Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a great guy. So uh, in addition to trying to prove the girl uh, and and show her what you did, what what she did wrong. You yeah. also decided to be um, a combat medic. And so how did how did all those decisions kind of line up and what drove you to become a combat medic? Well, I was thinking about that today because I'm often asked that question and, and I, I can't really think of any experience that made me um, you know, sensitive to caring for the needs of other people. I couldn't really think of anything other than the fact that, as I said, growing up as a single parent, I spent a lot of time um, with a single parent. My 
my mom and my aunts. And we really had a, a lot of caring for each other. The, the sisters, they all cared for my mother because she was divorced. There was a lot of caring of our, our cousins. They, I was the only divorced kid in the family of, of you know, 20 some people. Mm-hmm. And so there was always a lot of care and sensitive, genuine caring that was extended towards me. And I think maybe that had a big influence on me developing a sensitivity to the needs of other people. I can see that. Yeah, I can definitely see that being formative. Um, and and speaking of being sensitive to the needs of other people, can we fast forward to the day where you earned your Medal of Honor? So this was, I believe, April 1st of 1970 in the Kantum province in Vietnam. And I know you also have a special, the 15-year-old, the was it Dao was his name? Can you tell us a little bit about that day and that incident? Sure, Dao was, uh, I really, it's taken me a number of years to be able to start to feel comfortable in talking about Dao because for a number of years, there was just a tremendous sense of guilt that, that haunted me about our relationship. But Dao was a 15-year-old mountaineer boy and in the mountaineering culture, when, when a person reached the age of 15, especially if you were male, it was your duty to take on responsibilities to become a contributing member to that tribe. I mean, this was a, a people that lived, that lived in the jungles and everybody had to have their own particular responsibilities in order to fulfill, in order for them to be, to be able to, to live in the jungle. I, each person had to do know what they needed to do, and they needed to be able to be depended upon to do it. So at the age of 15, Dale became a, a contributing member of this the Sedang, the Mountaineer tribe, which included fighting. So he was we had an M60 machine gunner that was 12 years old. So Dale had been fighting for about three years. And uh, when I got there, um, I was kind of surprised at the jungle setting that I was, you know, Green Berets taught you to survive in a lot of different uh, settings and, and to be willing to adapt to different settings and, and circumstances. But in all my training, I cannot remember being taught how to survive with tigers. Yeah, I, <laughs> Right. <laughs> when I got there, I said to Dale, I said, Dale, you gotta, you gotta teach me how to survive here. I said, because I hate snakes, I'm afraid, deathly afraid of snakes, and I can't stand tigers. So you gotta teach me how to survive in this jungle setting. And he laughed at me and he said, Boxy, Boxy was Vietnamese for doctor. He said, Boxy, I don't wanna teach you how to survive. He said, the jungle provides us our way of living. We live by going into the jungle. The jungle is where we get our life from. So I wanna teach you how to learn how to live in the jungle. More than just survive, I want you to be able to live through these experiences that you'll be going through. And he, so for the next year, he taught me how to live. He taught me how to go into the jungle, what things to look out for, what things to, that were edible, what things were not edible. He taught me um, how to look for signs that the uh, NVA or VC were there. He taught me how to look for booby traps. He taught me how to live. And um, in that year and a half, we developed a tremendous friendship sure. with one another. We depended upon each other. Uh, you often hear the idea of, 
of camaraderie being something that's very critical to those in the military. But for me, I defined camaraderie as Dale and I had that kind of relationship where I would place my life in his hands. And no matter what happened, I could depend on him to be there for me. In the same manner, he could place my life or his life in my hands. I would be there for him. And no matter what happened, he could depend on me that I would always have his back. That whatever was needed for me to do, to protect him, to save him, I would do that. That was our promise to each other. And um, well, that camaraderie was tested on April 1st, 1970. And uh, we started taking incoming right away and we could tell that it was just, that this was the, a major attack. They hit us with artillery, uh, 122s, uh, all kinds of rockets. And that was in, that was for about an hour and a half of just artillery. It destroyed every, uh, our 105s, it destroyed all our generators, it destroyed everything above ground. And uh, my alert position <coughs> was a four-deuce mortar pit. So even though I was, I was cross-trained in weapons and medics, so I made my way to the mortar pit and I was sending out illumination rounds so we could see who was coming and what was happening. And it was at that time that we could just see waves of the NBA coming. Jeez. Uh, there was, it was estimated there were between oh, about five to 10,000 NBAs that were wow. running the camp. So during, uh, during a lull in the, in the artillery, the NBA started breaking through the surface in the tunnels that they had dug so that they were up in the wire after they broke through the surface and we were engaged in close quarters combat, we engaged in hand to hand. Uh, I got shot very early. Uh, I took some shrapnel in the spine and I couldn't walk. Um, I was heading back to uh, the medical bunker to get some medical supplies and I saw a mountain yard that was hit really bad. He, he took, a, took a round through the chest. And so I was trying to work on him and I heard a rocket coming in, so I laid on top of him to protect him. The rocket picked me up and blew me away. And I looked back at him and he was, he was just blown apart. He, there was just nothing left of him. So I always used to wonder, you know, I was laying on top of him and yet I'm alive and he's not. Right. But it was shortly after that, that when I got blown up, that I was blown into the mortar pit by the medical bunker. And I tried to get up and I couldn't move. I couldn't move from the waist down. Uh, I, some shrapnel had lodged in my spine and had knocked the spine unconscious. And all of a sudden I felt some arms, some hands picking me up. I was moving and I didn't know how I was moving. And I looked and it was Dale. And I wow. said, Dale, how did you find me in this chaos? You know, he said, this is where I belong. He said, I said, I'd be with you. I'm with you. So Dale carried me, everything that I did, all the different people that we helped, the uh, the fighting that we did, I did because Dale carried me. I couldn't have done it without him. I got shot another time in the side, and Dale took me down in the medical bunker for the other medic to take a look at me, and he said that I needed to stay down there. I had internal injuries. I, um, 
And I said, I'm not staying down here. If I'm going to die, I'm dying out there. So I said, Dale, come on, take us, take us back to the battle. So Dale picked me up again and carried me back in the battle rather than staying safe in the bunker where he was. I got shot again in the stomach. Dale took me down again to the bunker. Again, I left. He carried me out again. And this time, Dale got shot in the leg with small arms. And he couldn't carry me anymore. So Dale dragged me. He didn't want to let me go. He wouldn't leave me alone. He wouldn't leave me in the bunker alone. He wanted to stay with me. So he dragged me from person to person. And there were times when I would go unconscious. And he'd, he'd wake me up and go, come on, Boxy, we can do this. We can do this. There were times that he would go unconscious and I would encourage him, come on, Dale, we can do this. So for this extended amount of time, I don't know how long it was, we were carrying each other, dragging each other, encouraging each other to continue in the fight. And we heard a rocket coming in and Dale threw himself on top of me. And when this rocket hit, I could tell it was really, really close. And it lifted us both up in the air and landed us apart. And I looked over and I said, come on, Dale, we got to get going. And I reached for him. Uh, he was he, he was killed. He was dead. He had a, mm. he quite a few shrapnel wounds in his back and in his abdomen. He was in one of, the, one of the other yards that was with us. Told me that he was killed. And so he picked me up and he called another mountain yard medic. And they, they carried me and uh, we continued fighting until, until I collapsed and was medevaced. Took a few days. I think it took a couple of days before I was a medevac. Some people say I was medevac within the first day. Some, but I remember daylight and nighttime. It, it doesn't really matter how long it took. I got medevac. That was the good yeah. thing. Yeah. But I was medevac and sent to the seventy first evac hospital in Pleiku. Wow. Well, what a what a teammate you had in Deo and. Um, I, I know he taught you not just to survive, but to live and to thrive. Um, and I know that you also use Deo um, in your work with the students and you talk about the difference between success and significance. Yes. And significance is, um, I believe what you said, when, when you're a part of somebody's life and they're a part of yours and you both walk away changed. And I think it's very clear that you and Deo were significant and therefore successful um, for each other uh, in, in just what you guys both accomplished and helping each other out. That yeah, is just, yeah. that is amazing. And I'm so sorry for your loss, but I'm so glad that you and Deo had each other. We had a very special time and I developed my, those experiences in Vietnam. And I'll talk about them later because I see you want to go into the cave and in the cave, I developed what I called life lessons. And these were the these were things that I learned from Deo, things that I learned in Vietnam in the war about, about life, things that were critical to helping me do more than just survive. I, I would tell the students that my wish for them is that they would really achieve the success in life that they're looking for. But most of them wanted to be pro basketball players or rock stars, you know, and very few of them had the talent to achieve that success in life. I said, but you all, I found that there's something greater than success in life. And all of you have the talent to achieve that. And what I'm talking about is something called significance. 
And that is when you can make a difference in someone else's life. Each of you have that ability to be a significant part of someone else's life. You can do something that'll make a difference in someone else's life. All you need to be able to do is to care. You just need to be able to reach out when you see somebody hurting. Be there to tell somebody that you're there for them. If you can do that, you will begin to develop what I call a significant life. And Dale was very instrumental in helping me realize that in life, there is a big difference between success and significance. Dale never had much success. He never, he never made it as a rock star. He never, he never even went to school. He, he couldn't read or read English. He couldn't do the things that many of us here would say would be success. He sure had a significant life. He made a big difference in the lives of not only myself, but of every member, every member of that tribe. They loved Dale. That was one of the reasons I picked him too, is because he was looked upon as a, as a leader in that tribe. Even though he was only 15 years old, there was something about him that had leadership qualities. And uh, he taught me a lot about leadership qualities. <clears throat> and I think one of the things that when I talk about leadership is that Dale taught me this, is as I'll say to uh, the ROTC cadets or stuff before they're commissioned, I'll say, you'll never truly be a leader until you learn to serve. And you'll never truly serve until you learn that there's something more important in life than yourself. Because self is something you have to battle with. And if you can learn that there's something more important than self, I will follow you as a leader. Because you will have convinced me then <coughs> that there is something worth living for and something worth dying for. And as a leader, you may ask me to do something that I may die doing it. But I will do that. I will follow you if you can convince me that there's something worth dying for. But you'll never convince me that there's something worth dying for unless you know it, unless you learn it. So you will never become a leader till you learn that there's something more important than self. Because you can't serve, truly serve, until you learn that there is something out there more important than serving ourselves. So Dale helped me a lot with my life lessons. That's a really powerful message. And I'm glad that there are young people today and anybody listening needs to hear this. I mean, this that resonates so powerfully and I love that. And so you kind of refer to the cave and when I was when I was initially doing the research, I thought this was a like a figurative a metaphorical or analogical whatever the word is cave but you actually lived legit in a cave, I believe in New Hampshire is that correct when you came back from Vietnam. <clears throat> yeah, I fell in love with New Hampshire. In New Hampshire fell in love with me for a lot of reasons, but one day I was out there. And I heard a waterfall and being in the being in the woods there it put me back to being in the jungle and I started being sensitive to sounds I went, mm -hmm. I tuned into everything I wanted to know my environment and I heard this waterfall and I wanted to do we'll go explore it and so it was a beautiful waterfall I, I ended up spending a couple of days there exploring the area and then I found a cave that was nearby and I made a decision that I wanted to stay here. There was a saying we had in Vietnam that to really live, you must almost die. To those that fight for it, 
life has a meaning the protected will never know. And so I decided that I wanted to fight for life. I fought for life in Vietnam and I survived. But when I came back to this country, I faced a battle that was worse than Vietnam. I faced a country that hated me. I faced a country that wouldn't accept me. I faced a country that rejected me. And so I had to, I had to fight again. Uh, and to those who fight for it, life will have a meaning that the protected will never know. I decided that what I wanted to do was to go into this cave and I was gonna fight, believing that maybe the best way to fight was to go into this cave so that I could forget about the war. If I could forget about Vietnam, if I could forget about all the hate, if I could forget about all the killing, then I'd get, I'd be getting better and I'd understand life a little bit better. But after a year and a half in the cave, I, I quickly learned that forgetting isn't getting better. Forgetting is not getting better at all. Getting better was finding someone who is willing to come into your cave, huh. listen to you, hurt with you, cry with you, and help you heal. It's the healing that takes place in the cave through their listening, their caring, their love for you. That's getting better. That's what was getting better. And I had two things that came into my cave that helped me with healing. One of them was God. Uh, I went into that cave because I had had a, a person that presented me with the gospel and I'd become a Christian. And I, I knew what God thought about me. I knew God had forgiven me. But I needed to know what God thought of me. Um, what you know, I needed to know, God, am I as bad as I think I am? Is it, am I as bad as people say that I am? And so I went into the cave to, to really learn what God thought of me. But also I was in that cave, I had another experience. I had this post office box in town that I, I rented so that I'd get my VA disability check every month. Well, I went in there one day and there was a, a letter, a notebook paper like a piece of notebook paper like this. You know, I, I opened it up and it said, hi, my name is Lolly. I've seen you around town. Huh. Um, and then she just started writing me these notes, um, telling me about her life, what she's doing. She Tell me that she was uh, out of high school, that she had a, that she had a little girl. And she said that she um, just wanted to write to me. So she would, she would write to me two or three times a week. Wow. So apparently she was attracted because I had long hair. I had a red candy apple red band. And I, I carried around the guitar. I played a guitar. I used to sit in a town courtyard uh, by this fountain and I'd play the guitar, <clears throat> just trying to find some peace. But uh, she saw me and she started writing me. So my interest was peaked and I said, oh boy, I wonder what she looks like. Well, then very shortly after that, a picture of her showed up in my mailbox. And my gosh, did she look beautiful. She was gorgeous. And I said, I'm gonna find this Molly. There was only 2000 people in the whole town. <laughs> so if I had to knock on every door, I was gonna find out who this Lolly was because she was the only one that had reached out to me with any kind of care. And I, I said, wow. I was kind of hesitant though, because I was afraid like I really get to know me. 
because I didn't want her to get to know me like I knew me. I was afraid that she'd reject me, but I was so lonely that it was worth the risk. So I started looking for her and I found her one day in the laundromat in town. <laughs> so we started talking. I asked her out on a date. We went on a date. We went over to the next town, Berlin, New Hampshire. We went to the movies. The movie that we saw was The Towering Inferno with Steve McQueen. Okay. It was shortly after that, about a month after that, I said, so uh, so tell me, uh, when are we going to get married? <laughs> and she, she said, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll marry you, but you got to come out of that cave. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. So I, I came out of the cave. So I say there were two things that brought me out of that cave. One of them was touching base with God. And the other was touching base with Lolly. There was somebody who was willing to come into my cave and no matter what she found, she loved me. Mm -hmm. I shared some things with her, but it was okay. She loved me for who I was. And I remember when I went into the cave, well, I made a, I made a prayer. I said, God, you gave me my life in Vietnam. I should have died in Vietnam. But you gave me my life in Vietnam. I'm giving you my life back. Whatever you want for my life, that's all I want. I made that prayer in September of 1975. September 15th, I remember the day I made the prayer. Three weeks later, two weeks later, I was told I was being awarded the Medal of Honor. Wow. Two weeks after I made that prayer and said, God, I'm giving my life to you. He gave me the Medal of Honor. So I went into the cave to find out what God thought of me. <clears throat> and he helped me deal with the guilt that I felt. He helped me deal with forgiving myself, forgiving people that hurt me, because I learned that if I wanted to build a life, you can't build a life on hate and anger. You gotta build a life on forgiveness. I needed to forgive the people that hurt me. Mm -hmm. I needed to forgive myself. I needed to find a way to love myself, to love others. And so God taught me that. And then he brought Lolly into my life as a practical example of how to work out that love for another person. And then once I realized that he gave me the Medal of Honor, I realized that there must be a purpose for my life now. I guess maybe I do have a reason that I survived. Maybe there was a reason that I didn't die those three times that I got shot. Maybe there was a reason that Deo saved my life. And God has that reason. So I'm just going to follow him and see what he's got in store for me. So I left the cave, believing that God had a purpose for my life. And that purpose eventually led me to working with young people in middle school, which was probably the greatest thing I ever could have done. Those, those are some lucky young people. I, they, they, they really are. And we are all lucky to hear. I, I just love the advice and I love the way you couch the advice. Now there's something else I read, Gary, and if this is too personal, I, I, I we can certainly um, uh, skip over it. But I read somewhere that after you received the Medal of Honor that you kind of put it in a, in a duffel bag for about seven years. Can we talk about those seven years or what was going on through your mind? Sure. I had, I had come out of the cave <clears throat> and I'd come back to Rochester and I decided to go to grad school for counseling. And uh, 
grad school was the beginning of my dealing with my own hurt. I said that I that God helped me deal with forgiveness and guilt and everything. But it was also that counseling program where I really had, I had to do some down and dirty work in my own life, or forgiving myself, forgiving me for some of the things that I had done, the people that I had hurt. Um, when I received the Medal of Honor, as most men will say, their first thought is, why me? You know, I don't, I don't deserve this. I, I was just doing what I was trained to do. I did what I was expected to do. I did what the guy next to me would have done for me. In many cases, they did do for me. So I don't know why I'm getting this. And that, that's a burden to, sh to carry. Right. Why me? And I couldn't find an answer to why me. For seven years, I couldn't find an answer. That's why I put, I came out of the cave and I knew that the metal was something, but I didn't know what. I didn't know how to deal with it. So I put it in my duffel bag and I went to grad school. I started dealing with Vietnam. I started getting in touch with some of the Vietnam vets that were in the area. I started talking to some of them. Um, some of them found out that I had received the Medal of Honor. And we were, we ran a welcome home event done in Washington, DC. I think it was about in 1983 or 81, 82, somewhere around that time where the nation finally had a change of heart and they wanted to have a welcome home ceremony for, for Vietnam veterans. So they had a welcome home for us. And I went down there, I had, uh, I had the medal with me. And some of the guys from Rochester that I went with that were vets, they knew that, like I said, they knew that I had the Medal of Honor and they were always angry that I would never wear it. And one of them, a guy named Tom, at one of the, at one of the parties afterwards at the, at the welcome home ceremonies, we went to a whole bunch of parties. Tom said to me, Gary, quit being so selfish. It's not about you. If you say it's not about you, then wear it for us. Wear it for us, Gary. It's not about you. And so Tom took it out and put it around my neck. Oh. And I started wearing it for, for them, the men and women who fought in Vietnam. And I also started wearing it for God because people asked me questions about that and I would have a chance to share with them how that, how that God had a part of my life. And God entered my life mode. When I was in the hospital bed, I was shot three times. And I was fighting to stay alive. And that saying that we had to, to those who fight for it, life has a meaning, the protected will never know. Mm -hmm. I fought to stay alive. I wanted to fight to stay conscious. But I couldn't win this battle. I kept on going unconscious. And after a couple of times of going unconscious, I got really scared. Because all the training I had as a Green Beret couldn't keep me awake. I wanted to stay awake. But all my independence, my self-sufficiency, my courage, my willingness to endure hardship, none of that worked. And death won. I call that my hand-to-hand -hand combat with death. Hmm. It was like death was saying, is that all you got, Gary? Yeah, <laughs> piece of cake, you're, you're done. And death would put me unconscious again. And that was, that's a scary thing to have is to be going unconscious, knowing you're that this might be it. This is the act of dying. 
I close my eyes this time, they're closed for good. And that was a scary battle. I fought, I fought so hard. And one of the times I came to, I looked and there was a guy standing next to me. It was a chaplain. I saw some crosses on his collar. And he said, I'm glad to see you're awake, son. And I said, I'm glad to be awake, sir. And he said, I've been praying for you every day. And he said, would you like to pray? And I said, sir, I don't know how to pray. I don't even know who to pray to. And he said something that changed my life. He said to me, when I said, I don't know how to pray, I don't even know who to pray to. He said, that's okay, son. God knows how to listen. God knows how to listen to you. So at 24 years old, I made my first prayer. I said, God, if you're real, if you're real, I need you. Because I'm scared and I don't want to die. And something happened right then. I wasn't miraculously healed. You know, things didn't just start healing and closing up and all that. But there was a healing that took place here in my heart. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I knew that there was something greater than me. There was something out here that was outside of my experience that was stronger than me, greater than me, but more importantly, cared for me. I had a peace that came over me, a peace that there was something out there that loved me and something that I needed because I had used everything that I had to try to keep from dying and it didn't work. I needed something outside of myself. And it was there. And I took that to be God. And so from that point on, I made it my journey to try to find out about this thing that was out there. Whoever this is, I gotta find you because you're greater than anything in the world. I've gotta find you. And so I started my journey trying to find out about this God that I knew now was real. So when I came out of the cave and when I started wearing the Medal of Honor, I realized that I came out of the cave because I had a message. And this medal was an important part of that message. Part of that message was that there's a greater way to live your life than caring about yourself. There's a greater way to live. And that is caring for others, sacrificing yourself for others, doing something for others without expecting anything in return. Doing something of a sacrifice. That's what this medal represents. And that's the message that this medal shares with others. And that's the message that I share. That's the message that I came out of the cave wanting to share. But I also wanted to share a message too about God because God had shown me that there's a message also in this, that I wear it for his honor. And that he, he, God has a purpose for not only me with this medal, but he's got a purpose for each one of us. He's got a unique mission that each one of us can fulfill. If we'll just turn to him and say, God, what do you need me to do? Why am I here? If people would ask themselves that, God would, would show them their purpose and people would be able to live a life of significance because what could be greater, what could be greater, what could be more significant than doing in life what God wants you to do? This is the message, this is the mission that God has for me, and I'm going to do it. What a significant way to live. So that's the message that I carry with the Medal of Honor. There's a different way to live your life, caring for others more than yourself. 
and that God has a special mission for you to fulfill. So those, that's the message that I carried in with my students. That's the message that I carried in with the vets that I worked with. And that's the message that I have to remind myself every day that that's what this medal is about. It's not about me. Yeah. It's not about me. Every, every time I put this medal on, I literally have to tell myself, okay, Gary, it's time to step down. This is not about you. This is about something that's greater. There's no room for self when you put that medal around your neck, Gary. There's no room for self. It's about others. It's about God. And it's about caring for others. So each time I put this medal on, there's a process of attaining a state of humility, I guess, if you want to call it that. That's exactly the word I was thinking was how how humble you are about that and the fact that and most of the Medal of Honor recipients we have talked to all say the same thing, that they don't wear it for themselves. And I think for all of us on the outside, we would look and we would see there's this hero, there's this Medal of Honor recipient, um, and it's actually the, what you guys embody when you when you wear the medal is exactly 180 degrees opposite from what we would think in that, you know, it is all about you, but you're, I love the the message that you bring out and I love that you can channel all your messages through that. And I, uh, something else I read about, and I love your analogies. I love, um, you talked about climbing Mount Adams, I believe it was, and you were kind of frustrated by all these boulders and these rocks. And it wasn't until you got to the top and you looked back down at all you had accomplished and realized those things that had looked like obstacles had actually been your footholds and your handholds that helped you achieve that. Um, and I think right now as a nation, we're kind of going through, I don't know, kind of a couple obstacles going on in the world. Um, and, and, I, and I love your message about faith and the power of living a life of significance and looking at these obstacles. And we may not realize now that these obstacles we're living through are actually gonna be those rungs on the ladder that are helping us um, climb out of something. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, I, I know that's what you tell the kids, but I'm assuming that's how you comfort others when they come to you for guidance and support. Is that a fair, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you, that uh, you must have done a lot of reading. <laughs> yeah. I'm retired, Gary. I've got the time to read about fabulous people like you. So th this, this is not work for me at all. So yeah, I love reading up on you. Because that was one of the life lessons, the first life lessons that I learned when I went to the cave. I wanted to, I wanted to, here I am at the base of Mount, Mount Washington, you know, the tallest peak in the Northeast. I got to see the top up here. I got to see what it's like. And man, you start out and all of a sudden it's not such an easy climb, you know, and mm -hmm. you're, you're tripping over stuff and the moss covered rocks and you're scraping your legs and your legs are falling in, in the roots and you're twisting your ankles and stuff, and, but you don't want to quit. You can't quit. If I can just make one more step, one more step. That's what I kept telling myself. And then when I got to the top and I turned around and I looked and I said, oh my gosh, it was worth it. It was worth it. This is worth it. And then when I came with the second, the third and the fourth times, I started paying attention to those rocks. I started yep. paying attention to those, those roots because and they, they were there as a handhold for me. It was like a rung on a ladder that I was able to grab. And these obstacles were now aids to help me achieve what I wanted to see. And that was the beautiful view, view of uh, being at the top of Mount Adams, Mount Washington, 
And that's the way life is. If we can get through, if we can get through these obstacles to those who fight for it, life has a meaning that protected will never know. If you can get through those obstacles, you'll appreciate life. And you'll have a meaning to life that those who quit, to those who, after two or three obstacles, they say, ah, it's not yep. worth it. Yep. They'll never know that. They'll never experience that mountaintop view because they don't want to fight. So fight. To those who fight for it, life will have that meaning. And you'll sit up there accelerated, awe-inspired at what you're seeing and, and what an awesome God is able to do with your life. Those are things that life will teach you if you fight for it. And those are things that those who don't fight, I feel sorry for. Because yep. they don't want to come out of their comfort zone. Yep. They want to play it safe. Yep. They want to stay safe in the harbor. I'm not meant to go out there. It's, it's rough out there. Yeah, it is. But it's worth it. Yep. That was, that was a nice uh, Navy analogy you just put out there, Army guy. Well, I was thinking about another one about being safe in the harbor. But uh, I can't remember the full quote. Uh, you know those Navy, someone someone will chime in. They'll, they'll correct us. <laughs> when I was thinking about things that I wanted to write down, and you talked about my working with young people. Uh, a few years ago, I had the experience, I had the, the blessing of being able to be able to go to Israel. Mm. And being with Special Forces, I had a chance to work with the idea of Israeli Defense Forces. Mm -hmm. Which are there. Israel is a nation blessed by God in so many ways, but it's blessed because there's a there's a there's a quality of life that those people live that is just outstanding. And one of the things that I took away from my work with the IDF and work with students in Israel is those students are required to don't to give two years of their life after high school uh, in service mm -hmm. and we had the opportunity to go through some of the things that they, these high school students were going through. And one of the things was that they were taken to a outdoor classroom out on, a, out on the border of Syria. And I believe it was where Israel defeated the Syrian army, tank army, armor unit. They only had two, they only had six tanks, I believe. But they defeated the whole Syrian armor unit. And there was a General Kahalani who was the um, leader in that victory for Israel. And what General Kalani has done was each month he would take a group of high school students out to this battleground and they had an outdoor classroom set up oh. for the students. And General Kalani would sit, sit in front of them with a podium and a microphone and he would talk to these students he would talk to these students about who they were as a nation, about who they were, their heritage, the legacy, about the, all the way back from Abraham, Isaac, who they were as a nation and how that their legacy was so important. He was trying to establish in each of them a sense of identity, mm -hmm. a sense of who you are as, an, as a Hebrew, a sense of who you are is a a member of Israel. You are a unique person. And those kids walked away with a new, a new identity. They walked away with a sense of, wow, I now, I now know my heritage. There's a tremendous history in my country. And Mo, I gotta tell you, in my years of education, 
it saddened me to see that much, much of that has been eroded away by our educational system. Yeah. Much of it, you know, has been maligned, miscommunication, outright false things being shared about about who we are as a nation. You know, that that we're this nation of people who had nothing but slave owners. You know, we there's a we are the greatest nation on this earth. And one of the things that I see is important that we as recipients can do and we as the Medal of Honor Museum is we can share this message with our young people that we are a nation with a history, a nation of a history of caring for people, caring for their freedom, of wanting freedom for the, for the countries, the same kind of freedom that we have. We want freedom from all, for all people. And that's what I'm hoping that the Medal of Honor Museum will convey they will convey to our students this legacy of who we are as a nation. Well, that, that's what a great way to wrap it up because it's exactly these individual stories like yours and the message that resonates so well because you are such the perfect mouthpiece for everything that the medal in our country embodies and, and, and all those values. It's just, it's perfect because it's those individual stories that we wanna get out and it's exactly it's exactly what the goal of the museum is 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 aiming to do. Mr. Bykirk, I, I thank you so much for your time with us today. Um, I can't tell you how honored and humbled I am to just have this opportunity to have this one-on-one -on -one time with you selfishly wise. I just got to, to have this firsthand experience to hear about your life of service uh, in Vietnam and continued service back here in the schools and just back here in all of our lives. Uh, to everybody listening, I wanna remind everybody to uh, live a life of significance to make a difference, to make sure we're tuning into our environment around us so we can listen for those waterfalls, uh, to crawl into someone's cave with them and um, help other people heal. I would make a big advocate for the um, pen pal program, which got Lolly you. Um, <laughs> I wanna wish you a happy birthday on the 29th of August. Yeah. And also uh, let people know that Blaze of Life is um, the, the book by Marcus Brotherton is your life story. And I, I've started listening to it on audio form and uh, I can't wait to get it and read it in, in full. But I was am so honored to have spent the time with you and, and that we can share your story. So thank you for your time. So that'll be it for you and I today. But to yeah. learn more about the National Medal of Honor Museum, you can go to mohmuseum.org.org. Uh, and join us next time on Mission Inspire podcast. But Gary, I just want to say thank you so much for living a life of significance and for teaching us and modeling what that looks like and for encouraging our young people to find their identity and know their heritage and to continue living their lives of significance. It is a fascinating message and I am so honored to have spent time with you. Well, thank you, Mo. It's been a blessing. Truly. Really.